Welcome to this week's Energy Show. Now, battery storage is roughly where the PV or solar industry was in the early 2000s. It's a tiny market now, but it's exploding. The technology is evolving really rapidly. There's money-saving potential for customers, but there's risks for incumbent energy providers who are pushing back. The standards for battery storage are changing like quicksand, and investor funds are pouring in to take advantage of this inevitable market. So, the rapid hockey stick growth that we're seeing in the energy storage industry is likely to be even faster than that of the solar industry. All the pieces are in place for a number of successful companies throughout the storage value chain. (laughs) I wish we knew what those companies would be. But these companies, there will be a lot of successful companies. But as with the solar industry, there's going to be some spectacular train wrecks along the way, as well as some quiet failures. Companies just kind of run out of money and disappear. They'll just die without a whimper. So how much have we learned, we in the solar industry, the energy industry, learned from riding the solar coaster for the last 20 years? So that's what we're going to talk about on today's show. So here are eight mistakes that companies in the solar industry made that hopefully storage companies can avoid as they start to take advantage of this market. Okay, mistake number one. Now, this this is uh, constraints on critical upstream components. These are the ingredients that go into the systems. So, you know, I'm hypothesizing that lithium or cobalt, which are two of the critical components, ingredients, and elements that go into batteries, is going to be similar to the crisis we saw in, in the refined silicon in the solar industry 10 years ago. So in the way of background, solar panels are made, the most efficient way of making them, the, the most cost-effective is using refined silicon. And these early solar panels were all using semiconductor-grade silicon, highly purified silicon. And, and there used to be plenty of the silicon in, in the early 2000s, but as a solar the solar industry started to grow. The silicon industry, the industry that was refining semiconductor grade silicon, started to have some shortages. And boom, in, t- in the spring of 2004, this hit everybody right between the eyes suddenly. What happened is it takes like three or four years to ramp up the manufacturing of a, a refined silicon plant. And heck, in 2000, 2001, there wasn't a lot of demand for silicon. So the manufacturers weren't really building new plants. But as the solar industry grew, driven by Chinese and Japanese manufacturers, they had had more and more of a demand for silicon. And what happened is the silicon manufacturers required something called a take-or-pay contract from the solar panel manufacturers, the solar cell manufacturers, in order to deliver this critical raw material. There was a shortage. And so out of the limited supply that was available worldwide, these silicon companies said, hey, we'll sign a contract with you. You need to take X tons of silicon at this certain price. And if you don't, you still have to pay. And that was the way the contracts were in. Because everybody else wanted to buy the silicon. Silicon price started creeping up and up and up, up to $100 or or more per kilogram. So some companies making solar wafers and solar cells purchased sort of wisely tried to match their actual requirements going forward a year or two, what they actually were committing to contractually. Other companies overbought. They said, oh, we're going to need lots and lots of silicon, tons and tons of silicon. We'll sign the contract. Don't worry about it. We'll worry about it later. And so they overbought. Or, and what happened is when they didn't need all that silicon, they said, sorry, you know, we're not going to pay that 10, 20, 50, $843 million for all the silicon we ordered. And, and they were reneged on the contracts. Litigation for this stuff 
has taken years. I mean, one big case I think was recently defined. It was, I think, Solar World overbought, didn't pay, and had to pay an $800 million judgment. And they went bankrupt instead. So the silicon manufacturer, I think it was Dow Chemical or Hemlock, ended up having to write that off. So what happened is, Litigation about this silicon crisis took years and years and years and bankrupted some module companies. I expect to see similar dramatic swings in the supply of lithium and cobalt. I don't know whether some people think it's going to be lithium, some think it's going to be cobalt, depending on what the supplies are. But those two elements are the key elements that go into the batteries, that are going into cars, are going into houses, going into solar systems right now. And I think, as happened with silicon, we're starting to see panic buying, panic commitments for lithium and cobalt to meet the requirements that these battery manufacturers need. Suppliers are chaotically ramping up supplies, trying to, to mine and refine these elements more effectively. And there's going to be, at some point, a worldwide crash, whether it's going to be in, in five years, 10 years, who knows, but it's likely to happen. So the dynamics of the commodities market are really, really hard to plan and work out. So this mistake that I think the solar industry made with silicon and the battery industry is going to make with lithium or cobalt is almost impossible to avoid. But at least you can kind of plan for it and mitigate the, the downstream. And, you know, you just look at it from a battery manufacturer standpoint. If they expect to make 10 million batteries, uh, battery systems, and they don't have enough silicon or, or lithium for that, they're not going to hit their threshold. So they want to commit to that. But then again, if the prices go down suddenly and new entrants into the market don't have to pay the market prices at the time, that, that far-sighted company that was going to make 10 million batteries and buying silicon and uh, buying cobalt and lithium at the right price ended up paying too much for the raw material. Almost impossible to avoid. Okay. Mistake number two. I call it live by incentives and die by incentives. Incentives in the solar industry and in most industries are generally designed as a short-term bridge. I mean, it might be years until customer economics and, and the industry is working efficiently enough so that businesses are self-sustaining. Now, I have to state that there are some permanent incentives, for example, in the fossil fuel industry that, that, are, that don't sunset, that are there forever. But the solar industry has gotten its share of temporary incentives, whether the things like limited renewable portfolio standards or net metering or things like that. So those incentives have been out there. Thing is, when these incentives disappear suddenly, companies depend on depending on these incentives experience a sudden drop in sales, sometimes fatally. I'll give you a real typical example. I used to do installations, solar installations in New Jersey and New York and Connecticut and Colorado and other states. Well, we had a great business until the incentives went away. Suddenly, you know, one month, we couldn't sell any more systems, and it really clobbers the profitability of the company. Okay, so the question is, is the storage industry going to manage to reduce their costs quickly enough to grow sustainably without incentives? We'll see. Okay, mistake number three. I call it releasing half-baked products. Yeah, example in the solar industry. Some of the early PV inverters experienced very high failure rates. They were noisy in terms of making just sound, audio noise, and electromagnetic interference. Customers would say, hey, I can't tune into my favorite radio station anymore because there's solar noise. When the inverter goes on, the station's got static on it. Or these inverters just didn't function efficiently. Or they were missing key features that doomed them in the market. I mean, when I'm talking about high failure rates, there was one company that made inverters, and every single one that I installed failed placed them off from the manufacturer. The manufacturer gave me new inverters, didn't pay me to replace them. And then 30% of those new inverters failed again. And at that point, I was like, you know what? I only have a few dozen of the things out there. I took them all off and put in something else, and it worked out fine. So solar installers have a long memory. I remember the company that kind of walked, that really delivered failed products. And I remember the company that I kind of backed into and got something more reliable. So I'm aware of anecdotal reports of similar things happening with early storage systems, inverters, and control 
control systems that have some reliability problems, or they're missing critical software, or they're missing the key reason to buy that customers demand. You talk to different customers. Some people want to do energy arbitrage. Some customers only want backup power. If you don't have that, you're not going to sell. So the question is, are the early entrants in the battery storage and the inverter market going to be able to sell something that's good enough? It doesn't have to be perfect, because you get to the market, it's the first generation product. Good enough to capture sufficient market share without burning their customer partners, i.e. shipping a defective product and running out of money. Okay, mistake number four, ignoring software. Now, software is nice to have with solar. It's nice to have because you can do the monitoring of your solar system. It's kind of nice, but it's not a critical part of a solar system, but it is an absolute critical part with an energy storage system. You need to have communications between the inverter, between the battery, and to the customer so that they can be on the right electric rates. Now, just in terms of solar history, once upon a time, there was a company that made a great microinverter. The hardware was terrific. It was state-of-the-art. But they skimped on the control systems and the software that was required by customers for these microinverters because you kind of needed them to see what was going on on the roof. So without the software, there was no complete customer solution, even though the microinverter company said, the software is going to work. What happened to this company is they ran out of money before they were able to properly develop the necessary control system and software that their customers demanded. And tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of microinverters out there that kind of sort of you know, worked, but they weren't usable by customers because there was no monitoring. Similar problems are now being encountered by battery storage system manufacturers. Although it's possible to electrically connect the necessary hardware components and put them in a box. Get a box, put the inverter in, put the battery in, put the control system in. You get everything wired up. It works. Getting the phone app, the software, and the embedded firmware and all these components to work properly is complicated. Question is, will storage companies dedicate enough resources to make sure their software works as well as their hardware? Okay, mistake number five, assuming that electric rates will always go up. Now, to reduce payback times for systems and improve the perceived economics of solar power systems, many solar companies assume that electric rates would increase steadily forever into the future. I mean, forever is 25, 30 years. And that assumption was pretty accurate. It was based on pretty good historical data. You can kind of look at the long-term trend, and we did it too. I mean, I, I would look back at the energy prices in California from 1960 to 2001, and they went up by about 7% on a compounded basis, on the average. Now, unfortunately, some of these escalation rates, depending on how you cherry-pick the data or how you look at it, you may just look at certain rate tiers, were overly optimistic. So they didn't account for changes in electric rate structures. For example, California, they changed the time of use periods, so it reduces the benefits of daytime solar production. It used to be that the peak electric rates in California were from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., that was like right in the middle of the solar noon. Solar was cranking out, probably putting out 70% of its power during that time frame. Now the peak rates are from 3 p.m. to 9 p.m., and they're moving even later. So not a lot of sun at 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, like almost none. And to make matters worse, so first of all, by those peak rates changing, although the electric rates went up more, the value that solar would deliver would go down because you weren't able to run the meter backwards at, at, at as high a level. Now, to make matters worse for some customers who bought on financing programs like a lease or PPA, there was a payment escalator. Yeah, it's just kind of logical. You could say, all right, the uh, the PPA or the lease company would say rates are going up on an average of 6% a year. 
and therefore we're going to raise your payments by only a meager 2.9% a year. So the customers still think, gee, I'm getting coming out 3% ahead. But the reality is a result of these changing electric rates and the escalated payments and changing in net metering policy, some customers are discovering that they're actually spending more with solar after their payments than they were without. They signed up for a bad deal. So it's worth mentioning that, you know, I talk about why this is happening. It's not the solar company's fault that they didn't predict these electric rates properly. It's really the fact is that the utilities are defining these electric rates. They're the ones who are actually trying to come up with rates that are going to maximize their revenue which means that they're trying to find a way to get the most money out of customers, even the customers that have solar. So the question is, and I hope that this is going to work, that solar companies are going to base their long-term value propositions on sustainable benefits, not on kind of short-term electric rate structures. Typical example, if you're a storage company and you say, all right, this is the electric rate now, if you put in a solar system with a battery, and you're going to get make all this money on this kind of narrow, crazy time-of-use arbitrage shift, that's probably not going to stay at the same value for the next 25 years. So there are other benefits for storage, like backup power, tremendously valuable. And just being conservative about electric rate increases. What we do at Cinnamon Energy, quite candidly, we assume that electric rates don't change at all. I know they will, but I don't want to overestimate the savings of systems. And that's just a good conservative way to run a business. Okay, mistake number six, not paying enough attention to safety issues. All right, this is really important. The solar industry evolved relatively slowly. I mean, we didn't come out with a, you know 100,000 people in the solar industry right away. It started with 1,000, 10,000 kind of group. And the safety standards in the industry generally kept up with this grow, growth. Now, except for very few solar fires, and you know I've read news accounts of a few, and I've also seen accounts of systems that almost burned but didn't because they were installed safely. In fact, some of these things happened to us. We did the installation the proper way. There was the proper roof covering and there was damage to a solar panel. It didn't cause a fire. But solar panels inverters don't have a natural tendency to explode. And high dense, high energy density batteries can. So whereas um, in the solar industry, it kind of grew slowly. The standards were there. We weren't installing something that could, you know, 10 kilowatts, 20 kilowatts, 10 kilowatt hours, 20 kilowatt hours, 100 kilowatt hours of a big uh, utility scale battery. Um, th- those things can create a pretty big fire. And the battery industry is seeing the same thing happens with vehicles. And actually, the car industry is blazing the trail there. I don't want to use the term blazing too specifically. But first responders firefighters are learning how and and do have guidance on how to put up fires in a lithium-ion battery, in any kind of battery. And that's really good. But the battery storage industry has to be mindful enough of the hazards of these high energy densities in consumer products. So really important that they support standards and installation practices that are going to minimize hazards. Otherwise, regulators, maybe encouraged by utilities, are going to say, hey, you can't put a battery in your house because it might burn and burn down your house. So I just hope that solar and the storage industry is cognizant of what's going to happen and that the products that are being delivered are safe, they're tested, they're installed properly, and that we have all the proper guidance. I mean, we're installing systems right now at Cinnamon Energy Systems. The batteries that we're installing are from a very reliable company. We follow all the safety recommendations, including the the hazmat requirements on uh, shipping them. And uh, I'm really confident with it. But I've seen other systems where you're just basically buying these lithium-ion batteries, sliding them into a metal cabinet and putting it somewhere in the garage. It doesn't seem to be designed as in an integrated way that's going to be safe as some of the other systems out there. So just caveat, keep your eyes on it. This is important. All right. 
Mistake number seven, selling commodity components, not bankable systems. All right, so commodity solar panels sold by the kilowatt are analogous to batteries sold by the kilowatt hour. Until the tariff hit recently, there was a lot of solar panels out there. Nobody really cared who made them. They were just, you know, blue or black glass with a metal frame, and, a, and they just, you know, 300 watts, whatever, a certain price per watt, 40 cents a watt. And they were just being sold. Nobody really cared who made them. They kind of worked. There's also batteries on the market that I've had offers of. Just buy these batteries. They're made in China. They're really good. Don't worry. It's X per kilowatt hour. Just as a pallet of no-name solar panels aren't going to do much, a stack of no-name batteries is, is similarly worthless without all the components you need, but especially without the manufacturer that is going to bank the th back the thing up, a bankable manufacturer. These batteries also have a guarantee. Solar panels have a 25-year guarantee. It's, there's no moving parts. They're pretty solid. Batteries have different characteristics. The guarantees are a little bit more subtle. They're based on the energy that comes out of the battery. It's based on how the battery is treated. If you discharge it rapidly or thoroughly often, it's not going to last as long as it's only discharged a little bit gently every day. So successful solar panel manufacturers achieved bankability on their balance sheet, their, their business stability, and allied themselves with partners that could deliver complete systems. I think the successful battery companies are also going to have to focus on bankability, quality, and warranty integrity. These batteries, warranties are a little tricky, and the reputable companies are very specific about the warranties, what they do and what they do, and I trust them. Otherwise, and I know we're going to see it, we're going to see just tons and tons of lithium-ion battery cells being sold at liquidation based on a really, really cheap dollar per kilowatt hour. You know what? Those batteries are going to probably work. Are they going to last for 20 years or 10 years as they're, they're expected from a, a company that's just kind of cranking these things out in a no-name factory? Maybe, but it's not something that I want to risk with my business. Okay, mistake number eight, the inevitable black swan event. Now, this, is, this mistake is almost impossible to avoid because, by definition, it's completely unpredictable. My friend and, and fellow solar pioneer, Dan Marino, mentioned that almost every year, some kind of completely out-of-the-blue black swan event hits the solar industry. And just kind of, there's a litany of these things. Whether it's negative development <laughs> developments like Trumpium storms, um, raw material shortages, crazy tariffs, policy changes on net metering or RPS standards, or surprising bankruptcies like, oh, boom, one day, cylinder just disappeared, created all kinds of agony. Or standards that suddenly change that obsolete certain products or installation practices that used to happen. So these black swan events, usually they're negative, but there's also some positive developments. I mean, just going way back almost 20 years, Y2K created a tremendous demand for solar and backup power in, in the year 2000, because everybody was worried that their computer clocks wouldn't be able to go from 1999 to 2000. Or the great tax credits that industry organizations such as SIA really managed to get through. Or the state SIA has got some great state incentive programs, like the CSI program in California. Or new technology that suddenly makes systems cost-effective. So what kind of black swan events are going to hit the storage industry? I have no idea. I hope it's not going to be battery fires in a house, although we're starting to see those in cars. I expect that there's going to be some commodity shortages, and they're going to hit suddenly because everybody's going to renegotiate the contract at once. Or, you know, more ill-advised protectionist tariffs, which is going to happen with storage because it's happened with solar and kind of everything else. So these things are going to happen. Tough to plan for. All right. So just to kind of, in conclusion, as a solar guy who's deploying behind-the-meter battery storage for businesses and homes, I'm always happy to learn from mistakes. And I 
always, always prefer that these mistakes to be made by other people, not me, although I have a pretty big book of mistakes that I've made myself. So what other lessons have we learned in the solar industry that are going to help the profitable and rapid growth of storage industry? I don't know, but we're, you know, will somebody be able to write a book about them in 10 years? All right. So just kind of wrapping up battery storage coupled with solar power, surprisingly affordable right now. I'm talking about paybacks in the range of seven, eight, nine, ten years for certain systems. You can get shorter paybacks maybe with iffier equipment or really cheap installations. Keep in mind that batteries allow you to save your own rooftop solar power and use it at night when the electric rates are the highest. Plus, you get backup power when the lights are out. So check with your local solar contractor to see what's available for your home or your business. That's all the time we have on this week's Energy Show. Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. And if you missed any of today's show, you can always go to our website at cinnamon.energy and listen to the podcasts. 